Hi, welcome everybody. So let me start with uh, an example of how our society is changing over the years. Um, you might notice that, that systems are actually impacting our behavior like never before. Think about, for example, um, the train stations where these gates are set up right now. If you, if you try to enter the train station now, it's completely different than 10, 15 years ago. You could actually get on a train without buying a ticket. It, it wasn't allowed, but you could do it. Now you have these gates at the station. And actually, if you don't have a valid ticket, you just cannot enter the station. And so, so in a sense, these systems, they have a more impact on your life than, than law ever did, right? And it's not just that. They, they, they don't only facilitate that, but they also determine where you can actually enter the station. And they determine that they cannot say goodbye to anybody close to the trains anymore. So systems are impacting our, our lives in a way like law never ever did. Um, even if these systems are not obligatory, think about your, um, your, your, the system in your car, your navigation system in your car. The navigation system in your car decides how do you actually go from A to B. And in a sense, that's great. But we all recognize that picture in the, in the bottom corner over there. This guy is actually driving through wet concrete because his navigation system told him that that's a good idea. Now, there's actually a word for such a, such a system. Uh, it, it was uh, put by Evgeny Morozov. He wrote it down in his book, The Net Delusion. And he calls it, this is invisible barbed wire. And he says, you know, we have this invisible barbed wire that is gui guiding us uh, through life. And when he wrote this down, it was about five years ago, he said, this is actually impacting our democracy. Now, Evgeny Morozov is famous for not being too positive about all the developments on data and analytics. So when he wrote it down, we actually thought, oh my god, there's Morozov again with his, all this negativity about how these systems are impacting our lives. But nowadays, we start to realize, eh, with the fake news and the impact on the elections, that Morozov actually had a point, and that these systems are, in fact, impacting our democracy. And the question is, what can you do about it? Now, first of all, uh, you have to identify what the issues are that these systems actually can cause you. And if you look at the newspapers, you see, of course, headlines every day that tell you what these issues are. And you can categorize them in, in five different areas. So first of all, there are reliability issues with these algorithms. Think about uh, the news these days that, that self-driving cars are killing people. Second of all, uh, there are cybersecurity incidents. So again, cars, you know, a few years back, they hijacked the Jeep through the media and entertainment system, which turned out not to be safe. And you could log, log into that Jeep, go into the main systems of the Jeep, and actually um, make sure that, that, that the left front wheel brake uh, was applied. So then you end up in situations like that. The Jeep actually ended up uh, next to the road. Uh, think about IT architecture and controls. A famous example, everybody knows these smart locks that you have on the doors these days. Really handy, you can manage them with your phone. And then if, if somebody rents your house through Airbnb, you can give them the code and they can go into your house and then after a week or so, the code actually expires so they cannot get into, into your house anymore. So perfect for these situations. Except when actually there is a firmware update and the locks are broken. And they are broken beyond repair. So you cannot enter your house anymore. And what you notice about all of these examples is that these are not about money, right? 
These are actually examples that touch your daily life. Tom Tom was in the news a few years back. Uh, Tom Tom is a navigation system supplier here in the Netherlands, one of the biggest ones, and it was really cool because, uh, yeah, they were one of the first that actually can get you from A to B really quickly around traffic jams, etc. because they created speed profiles. On every moment, on every spot, they knew what the average speed was on that road. Um, except we found out that at a certain point they started selling this stuff uh, to the national police, who started to optimize their radar controls based on this data. So you see that data management is actually an issue that is no longer something internal and financial, it's also something that is actually touching our daily lives. And the final topic, one of my favorites, is ethics. And of course Facebook is here one of the main examples. It's somehow turning up over and over again in ethics-related issues. And this is one of my, uh, the ones that, that attracted most of my attention was in Australia last year. Uh, so Facebook developed an algorithm that actually can determine if children are feeling worthless about uh, themselves. And uh, that could actually be a good thing, you know? If you use that to intermediate, that would be great. You can offer these kids help. Except in this case, they decided to make that algorithm available to some companies that sold stuff. Specifically, they sold stuff that these children buy only when they really feel shit about themselves. So it turns out that they are developing something good, they were just applying it in a non-ethical way. So you see, all of these topics you basically have to address if you want to be able to live in a trustworthy environment with all these systems that are controlling our behavior. Now, ethics is actually changing around these systems, and it's, n it's not the same anymore as it was uh, when we didn't have these systems and these algorithms calculating everything that, uh, about us. Um, so think about, your, for example, your healthcare system, right? If you go back 30 years, we also had a healthcare system. How did it work? Well, we all had contributions to the healthcare system. We all paid about the same amount of money. And then when you actually got ill, you had the opportunity to get the money out of the, out of the bucket and pay your, pay your bills. And in a sense, people said, you know, we, were, we, were very, we had a lot of solidarity back then. But if you think about it carefully, what I just described has nothing to do with solidarity. We just didn't know who got sick. So this is not solidarity, this is risk sharing. We all have the risk of going ill, and if you get ill, then basically you can get it out. That, that has nothing to do with solidarity. You're basically sharing the risk with a whole bunch of other people. These days, it's completely different. These days, we can calculate on an individual level what the risk is that you're getting ill. And we can see that I have twice the chance that you all guys have to get ill. And then the question is, are you still willing to chip in the same amount of money that I do if you know that I have twice the, the, the probability to get that money out of the bucket that you do? And then it becomes an ethical issue. There was, an, uh, there was a poll a couple of months ago in the Netherlands and they asked people this very question. Uh, would you be willing to pay for other people if they get ill? And you get answers like, well, you know, if this is a chronic disease or if this is something you're, you're born with, yes, of course I'm willing to pay for, for, for this person. Um, but if he's smoking a package of cigarettes a day, then, well, I don't know, then maybe he should pay his own bills. And 
it doesn't really matter if you agree with these statements or not. What it, what it shows is that instead of being a risk-sharing issue, now it suddenly becomes ethical. And you get ethical discussions about when do you actually want to pay and when do you don't you want to pay. Because on an individual level, we can now determine if somebody has a higher probability to get, get ill and what is causing it. Another famous example is the self-driving car. And uh, this is an example that actually comes from an interview with Barack Obama and uh, when he was still president. And I asked him, uh, you know, what do you think about these self-driving cars? And Obama said, well, suppose that I'm in the back, of, of such a self in the back seat of such a self-driving car and there is a toddler that jumps in on the road in front of that car. What does that self-driving car do? Does he kill the toddler? Or does he kill the President of the United States? So now everybody says, well, please kill the President of the United States. But, you know, this is a context-aware analysis, so that makes it even more hard. Uh, what, what, I, what I'm trying to, point I'm trying to make here is what, what you see in this specific situation is that this decision wasn't ethical before because it was a reflex, and now suddenly it became ethical because now you program this algorithm and you basically have to decide in advance what that car is going to do. So because we have algorithms, suddenly things become ethical. The other main thing that you become aware of when you see this case is that the responsibility is shifting. It's no longer the responsibility of the driver because there is no driver. So whose responsibility is this? Is it the responsibility of the guy that bought the car? or the person that sold them the car, or who built the car, or who put the algorithm in the car, or who built the algorithm, where is that responsibility? It's probably across, divided across all of these parties, um, and that also means that they all have a liability in this case. So this is a major shift for these companies that are actually building these kind of, in this case, a car manufacturing company. They have to think about what liability do I get when my systems are actually killing people on the road. The last picture on this slide is about a report that uh, we wrote with the Scientific Council for, for Government Policy. Uh, we wrote it for the Ministry of Safety and Justice. And um, what we stated there, we had a lot of discussions, as you know, in the Netherlands about um, uh, intelligence agencies that, that, that are allowed now to, to basically look in all kinds of data and try to find correlations and, and find terrorists, etc. And um, the question is, uh, do you want privacy or do you want safety? That, that's what, what the graph shows. So you can, you can say, if you, if you all give up your privacy, then we can make this society very, very safe because we can find all these terrorists and there will be no bombs. And the other extreme is, well, you know, you can have your privacy very well protected, but then you have to accept that we will be having um, uh, bombs every day and, and, and that, that um, we are not safe anymore. And then the question to us, to society, is where do you want to be? Do you want to be extremely on the privacy side or extremely on the safety side or somewhere uh, in the middle? Now, what we said when we wrote this report is that that simplification of the discussion is actually uh, not doing justice to this problem. Because if you look at it, there is a lot we can do to actually do two things at the same time. 
We can develop pri through privacy by design, through proper security measures, we can develop systems that actually do both. Yeah, they, they guarantee your privacy and they can still make sure that we are safe. Maybe not in all cases, but let's say that we can do that in 90% of the analyses, we can build a system that guarantees both. And that, that's a completely different shift in this picture. That, and then you're no longer walking along that line, and basically you're shifting the entire line to the upper right corner. And if you do that, then you see that the impact of the other discussion, do you want privacy or do you want safety, becomes far less. And that's actually a responsibility for all of us. It's a responsibility of the organizations that are developing these algorithms, and it's a responsibility of the data scientists that are building them. So, in a sense, this is a very simple decision, you know? There's nobody that says, no, you shouldn't go to the right top corner, you should go to the, to the left to, uh, bottom corner. So this is the responsibility that we all carry and that we should contribute to. Now, value is no longer created by individual parties these days. It's, it's, it's an ecosystem. Um, it's an ecosystem uh, function to actually create value around data. And, and there are different ways to do that. If you look at the, at the past, de past decade or so, then you see that there is one specific ecosystem that is very successful. It's a platform with one giant party in the middle that controls everything. Now, if you think about Google, Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, Amazon, all giant parties in the middle of an ecosystem, a lot of small parties around it that help to create the value, but all the main decisions are taken by that one giant party in the middle. Now, if I would, if I would compare that to a traffic situation, that would actually be a crossing with traffic lights. So there is a lot of parties on that crossing, but there's only one party that in the end is taking the decision, and that is the, the party that is controlling the traffic lights. Now, from an investment perspective, that is a very easy ecosystem uh, to fund because you know exactly which party is going to be successful. It's the big party in the middle that is going to create all, get all the value out of this ecosystem. But from other perspectives, it becomes much harder with these ecosystems. And these are the effects we see today. And one of them is scalability, and the other one is trust. So from a scalability perspective, I always like the, uh, the Tesla example. You know, uh, Elon Musk is, of course, the champion of ecosystems. He's the guy that funded or founded PayPal and, and basically got rich on one of these ecosystems where you have this giant party in the middle. But now with Tesla, he's in a different situation. Because with Tesla, he's actually not able to build, scale that ecosystem fast enough all by himself. So a few years back, he made an interesting, he made an interesting business decision. He said, you know, I, I, I have all these patents, I invested billions to create these patents, but I'm actually going to share them with other parties. From a classical perspective, that's a very weird choice to make, you know? You've developed all this IP and then you're just going to share it with other parties, under certain conditions, but still. But if you think about it in terms of ecosystems, then it becomes very clear what he's trying to do. He's actually trying to get parties onto his ecosystem. And the best way to get these parties onto your ecosystem is by sharing IP. And by not creating value with one giant party in the middle, but by creating value with all little parties that are on that ecosystem altogether. So if you think about that type of ecosystem, that's no longer a, a crossing with traffic lights. That would be a roundabout. 
And a roundabout is much better scalable than a crossing with traffic lights. Because, well, you, you, all, you all know, you know, if, 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 if a crossing with traffic lights, if it gets busy, if it gets more complex, you get bikers and you get pedestrians and you get a fifth road, then it becomes very hard to actually optimize uh, such, a, such a crossing. And you're all waiting for an empty crossing. But with a roundabout, you don't have that. If you use a roundabout, every user of that roundabout only has to make two decisions. You have to get on the roundabout and you have to get off the roundabout. And it doesn't matter if there's five cars on that roundabout or 500, it's still two decisions per user of that roundabout. So it's a much better scalable form of an ecosystem. In fact, we, we have a couple of these ecosystems, like the internet itself is such an ecosystem. The problem is, how do you get them funded? From a commercial perspective, it's very hard to decide which is the winning party in this ecosystem. And yeah, that shows with the internet. I mean, the internet was, was funded by the American Ministry of Defense, and uh, it was not developed as a commercial solution at first. Now, if you think about it, uh, you see that these investment, investment issues are real. Uh, who of you know Diaspora? See a few, a few fingers. So I, I don't need to ask who knows Facebook. But the, the difference between Facebook and Diaspora is basically that, that Facebook is set up like this one ecosystem with a giant party in the middle, and Diaspora is more set up like a roundabout. But you cannot find investors for Diaspora because you don't know who's going to be the winning party in that ecosystem. So where Facebook has billions to spend on actually getting all these parties onto their ecosystem, Diaspora has very little money. So Diaspora, 100,000 people globally, Facebook, 2 billion. So you see that this investment discussion is actually real. From a trust perspective, it makes much more sense actually to think about roundabouts. Uh, fake news is a very good example. So if you see how, how Facebook tries to resolve the, the, the uh, fake news discussion, it's basically by creating filters themselves that are better in distinguishing real from fake news. The point is that I actually don't want to trust a single party to decide what is real and what's fake. Google took a different approach here. In the US, they are testing this fast fact checker uh, where they opened up their ecosystem for this specific choice. So they allow other parties to decide what's real and what's fake. For example, you can have a Bloomberg or a Reuters that is then doing that filtering. And then you get some sort of a, like an app store functionality where we can pick and choose which ones of these filters we like. And if I have something to choose, then basically the trust comes back into this ecosystem. So that's what, you, what you're seeing that's happening now, that when you actually can select one of these parties, that people, people actually are happy to trust one of these parties that they selected to be the best in filtering that news. So if you need trust, you see shifts basically from a centrally organized ecosystem more to a roundabout kind of ecosystem. So what is trust? A lot of people think that trust is somehow related uh, to transparency. And actually, it's not. Um, or it's very little. I mean, we cannot function without trust. If you think about trust in real life, think about a pack of milk you buy in the supermarket. You look at the expiry date, and you actually, it's not that you trust that expiry date because uh, you know exactly how it was calculated. 
you trust it because you buy that pack of milk in a supermarket you know, from a brand you know, so it's about reputation, uh, etc. Um, so it's really soft factors. Uh, brands, reputations, experience. I already buy that pack of milk for 10 years and it never failed me. The only moment where actually trust and transparency are connected is if you're the expert yourself. And just, that just very rarely happens. Skip a few slides because I see that I'm behind uh, schedule. Um, one of the things that we are actually trying to do is we're trying to e create ecosystems that you can trust. So in order to create these ecosystems that you can trust, at the university we've, we developed something that we call the Trusted Digital Marketplace. And it allows you to enforce uh, exactly the policies that you want on your data and on your analytics. So it allows you to build a roundabout ecosystem with very stringent controls on what you want to do with your data and what kind of analysis you want to allow. And for example, we are applying this to healthcare. So if you want to optimize health paths, then usually that, that happens across organizations. So we are working with several organizations in the healthcare ecosystems to actually make sure that, that, that you can do that analysis, but only do that type of analysis. And that's the way where, where you can see these ecosystems go and make sure that, that trust is in there. Um, this is actually getting big, right? Because this is the Toronto Waterfront project. It's a huge project. project. It's uh, executed by uh, Google Sidewalk Labs. And also there you see these questions coming back around trust. So what I wanted to end with is actually how do you actually solve this? So one of the things that we think as KPMG, and we, are, we have seen this problem before. It's the same problem that we tried to fix when we were auditing annual reports. So we think the future of KPMG is actually that we're no longer just going to audit annual reports, but we are going to audit these algorithms. And luckily for us, we are not the only ones that are thinking that. Here you see a couple of press statements over the last couple of weeks. And so the city of Amsterdam is actually stating that any algorithm that they are going to use that has any impact will have to be audited by an independent third party. The same is now happening in New York. And actually in the, in, in the Netherlands now there is a statement from uh, one of the uh, ministers that says, you know, I'm going to make sure that for any city in the Netherlands we are applying this independent auditing on algorithms. So that's where we think that the future is going to be. And from science, that's supported as well. There's a really broad science community at the moment that is trying to determine what algorithms should be audited and which ones not. And if you need to audit an algorithm, what are you actually going to audit it against? So for me, I think that's a responsibility that needs to be filled in. And I'm really glad that KPMG decided to step up to that responsibility. And that's where we are going to, to head for the next decade or so and probably longer. Thank you very much.